Jacques Pepin is one of the world's most revered chefs, and in this episode of 92i Talks, he reveals his cherished recipes for cooking at home. In conversation with travel host Anthony Bourdain, Pepin previews his new book, Heart and Soul in the Kitchen, and his life in the culinary arts. The conversation was recorded on October 6, 2015, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. I, I hope you will uh, forgive my flushed complexion, idiotic grin, and high-pitched squeaky voice. I am so honored and thrilled to be here sitting next to this man. Uh, <laughs> I mean, chef, educator, author, TV pioneer, somewhere along the line, you found time to what, get a master's degree in French literature from Columbia, a Zelig-like figure in American gastronomy and French gastronomy for that matter, cooked for three presidents. There at every major point in, in culinary history, I mean, uh, Le Pavillon, uh, the early days of Howard Johnson's, a pioneer of uh, the celebrity chef thing, how where it all started with you were there. More than seven decades in the restaurant business. I mean, you started at. <laughs> how old? How old were you in that picture on the cover of The Apprentice? Uh, I am just thirteen. Thirteen years old. Yes, it's uh, yeah. It was another world, you know. I mean. My mother had a restaurant, and uh, since we were a kid, five, six, seven years old, my brother and I got work in the restaurant. I don't ever think we ever came back from school and said, I am bored. I said, you're what? <laughs> no, we had to clean bottles, wash things. They never even asked if we did our homework, but uh, that's the way it was. And then there was no car at the time. My mother had a little restaurant. So we go to the market in the morning, the market along the Saône River in Lyon, an open market from 2 o'clock in the morning until 10. So we walk the market one way, my two brothers and I carrying our bag, and my mother pricing and buy on the way back. She knows that that case of mushroom, that case of tomato, she cannot use it for tomorrow, so she's going to try to get it for a third of the price or half the price or whatever. Came home, start peeling a vegetable, and does the dinner. There was no refrigeration. So she had an ice box. That she bought a block of ice every day for her fish and her meat. But she had to use it during the day, the other vegetable, and the day after in the morning. Everything was all over again. So everything was kind of like a bore, organic. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, my mother was an organic gardener. Of course, the word organic did not exist. But <laughs> chemical fertilizer did not exist. And fungicide, you know, insecticide too didn't exist either. So that's the way it was, you know. But she would have liked a refrigerator with electricity. <laughs> you were uh, the picture on the cover of, uh, of The Apprentice. You know, you're in, uh, uh, you're in uh, Kitchen Whites. Right. You were, you were, that was after you'd been working for a while with your mom. Right. That, that was, was your after first. When I get into apprenticeship, formal apprenticeship in Bourg-en-Bresse, which is a town about 40 miles from Lyon, where I was born, actually, and it was a big old hotel, Hotel de l'Europe, you know, and that's where I left home to go into apprenticeship. And, and that, that was, was around 13? Yeah, it was 1949, yes. Child labor, where did it go? Yeah, you know, right. it's, <laughs> <laughs> what, 
What is going through, I mean, it's a, it's a heart-rending picture that, that the uniform is a little too big for you, you know, you're very, very young, uh, it, it's tough work. What, what was, if you can remember, what, 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 was, what do you think was going through your mind at that moment when they took that picture? Excitement, certainly. I'm leaving home. I don't have to clean the bottle anymore. <laughs> so uh, to go into apprenticeship, my own room, not my own room, there was four other apprentices, but, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a freedom thing and another world. I mean, I'm going to start cooking in a big kitchen, and of course, when you get there, the chef, uh, uh, I had no name, my name was you. And uh, uh, he said, you do that. And if you had said, why, he would have said, because I just told you that was about the end of the explanation. So you would do that for like a year, a lot of cleaning, a lot of shopping, a lot of... Uh, and then one day the chef came and he said, Jacques, call me by my name first time, you started the stove tomorrow. I said, oh, what? I didn't know. Well, somehow I knew how to do it. Question of osmosis, you know. Uh, you up next to the other, you look, you look, and you go to the stove, you know. Totally different than the, the way it taught now. Uh, you know, we had to conform. And for years and years and years, certainly until I came to, even at the pavilion in New York, you conform. I came to the pavilion and remember the striped bass in, uh, in uh, champagne sauce we did at the pavilion. You can put me at that table, I close my eyes, you give me that fish, I say, that, oh, that's the stripes of the pavilion. See, we remember things by taste of those essential dishes. So the idea was to conform. 10, 12, 15 chefs at the pavilion, everyone would have been able to do that particular dishes. That was, you know, uh, an essential dishes of the pavilion. And now a young chef wants to say, well, wait a minute, make sure that they know I've done it, I'm signing it to, it's me who did it. So it's not a question of conforming, it's different the way we teach now. You know, you describe, uh, with, without ever complaining, you describe a... <laughs> That's good. Now, that, that'd be Thank important. you very much. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. You describe a very... South America. <laughs> Chile. You describe a very tough life uh, for anyone. Long hours, yeah. not much pay. Uh, the classic uh, you brutal hazing, uh, what, sending you around town to other kitchens oh, for yeah, right. heavy, pointlessly heavy objects. Um, you know, one of my favorite stories, somebody asked, uh, a journalist asked, uh, sadly no longer with us, great chef Jean-Louis Paladin, uh, chef, uh, why did you choose to become a chef? And in a rare moment of honesty from a, from a working chef, he <laughs> actually gave a, a, a real answer. He said, Madame, choose? My parents sold me into slavery. <laughs> um, is, where does that tradition come from? I mean, I, I, I think it's, have we, what is it about the business or the history of the business about cooking that maybe we fail uh, to understand about that, that tradition? I'm not saying sold into slavery, but it, is a, it was a very working class, mm -hmm. uh, tough, hard scrabble, blue collar life for people with limited options. And I wonder if yeah. you'd, you talk about, you know, who went right. into the business back when you started? But yes, hard work. Seven days a week, we had no day off. At the end of the month, they gave me four days. There's four weeks in the month, so I could go home, take the bus, which I pay, and uh, to take back to my mother my, my jacket, my, my towel, my hat, my pants, the sheet of my bed, everything. So, 
But you know what? All that work, what there was also, there was a great deal of happiness. I loved what I was doing. Uh, yelling in the kitchen, a great deal of, uh, of uh, joking around with uh, the apprentice, the chef too. Yeah, there was happiness. You know, it's not like if it was a horrible life in the mind. No, we ate, we were happy. I, I thought life was absolutely wonderful. Of course, I didn't know anything else. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, no, life was very good. We enjoyed it. Would I go back to it now? <laughs> Probably not. For my kid or my grand, my, I have a granddaughter, you know, 11, 12 years old. I would never ever do that type of thing. But, well, but we were happy. Let me, let me ask that I, because I, I'm, a, I'm a father of a, of a little girl, and people ask me often, "What would you say if your daughter came to you and said, I want to be a chef?'" Um, at first, my first thought, I always say, is at least she didn't say, "I'm marrying a chef," you know, or <laughs> "I've met somebody; he's a chef." Um, at first, I think I'd be horrified, but then, of course, I'd be very proud because it's that, that she would choose such something so difficult, I guess. Um, I'm wondering, though, I, I, I use you as an example or a story from The Apprentice uh, in a question that be usually becomes an argument when I talk with other chefs. Um, it's a general question, but I use uh, a story that you tell as to defend my position. So. I'm gonna see how you feel about this question. Which is more important, do you think, um, in cooking in general? The ingredient or the chef? Without any question, the ingredient. You know, the ingredient. I mean, because proceeding by the absurd, you know, <laughs> if you don't have the ingredient, there is nothing you can do. Uh, the chef, some are better, some are other. But even a great chef, if you really have lousy ingredient, there isn't much you can do. Uh, and if the chef is half decent, if the ingredients are really good, it's going to look good. Uh, yes, the ingredient, without any question. And you know, what happened is that as a young chef, you get crazy with ingredients. They take it, put that, put some of this, put more of that, more of this here, more of that. You add, you add, you add, you add, you add to the plate, you know. And 80 years old, with that different metabolism, you take away, take away, take away <laughs> from the plate. Say, here is a tomato, just right temperature, a bit of olive oil, coarse salt, perfect. Just one thing. So, you know, there is uh, a great deal of traveling in your life where you move from one thing to another. There is so many different types of cuisine too. You know, if you want to go eat at Ferrand Adrian, it's an extraordinary experience, but it has nothing to do with eating at my grandmother or eating somewhere else. You know, we cannot just put food on an equal level. Uh, each meal are the same, they are not. Just to be argumentative. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, it's really nice to have good ingredients. Yes. Um, you know, you can pretty much, Dave Chang got in a lot of trouble for talking about figs on a plate. You know, it's just throw, you know, how they supposedly on the West Coast just throw figs on a plate and, and that's, that's it. Well. If it's a really good fig, that's a pretty good meal. But I guess my argument would be, you know, you describe very vividly going to the market with your mother and laying back and waiting for the vendors to mm -hmm. be in maximum distress, that last right. minute, the saddest, most unsellable right. vegetables, at which point you'd swoop in, make a right. bottom dollar negotiation, and go back and transform not very good ingredients into something pretty good. And in fact, I will go further. <laughs> what is, 
What is coco vin but a second best ingredient? It's a but, tough old bird. Yes and no, but the, the point is that uh, I don't agree with you, lesser ingredient. I go to a supermarket now and they have tiny white button mushroom. Beautiful, 350 a pound, whatever. I go there and then where they sell the leftover vegetable, they have a package of mushroom which are black, open, and uh, it's uh, 75 cents for that package. Those mushrooms have more taste than those button mushrooms. They have rich maturity, they will release more juice, it's darker, but they have taste. The other ones very often do not. And if a tomato is slightly overripe too, it's certainly going to be much better than it's underripe, you know. So that's one point. The second point is that I have an aunt, I had seven restaurants in my family that I can't count up, seven women. I've never been, uh, I, I'm the first male to go into that business. So, and I couldn't even cook with my aunt, even after I came from apprenticeship, after I worked in Paris, I worked with the president in France, I come back, if I cook with my aunt, my mother, too, they say, no, no, you use too much butter, you dirty too many pans. <laughs> <laughs> Get me out of the way. So, uh, uh, the point is that, okay, my mother would do, she had a restaurant called $1. It was five francs when I came to the United States. Uh, five dollars, uh, I mean, five francs was one dollar. Her menu was five francs. She had three or four orders, like an artichoke, a slice of them, salad of tomato, three vegetables, vegetables always separated, three meat or fish, one fish, two meat, and then a dessert, a cheese, two, or an apple tart, two. The thing was one franc, with a carafe of wine, service, tax included. So, you know, I tell you, she had to go to the market and really buy the best possible way of doing that. Now, you work in that restaurant, my mother is doing a, 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 you know, a, a quiche Lorraine, fine. Well, she take a dough, well, she use some lard, she use maybe a little bit of butter, flour, too. she push it there, she roll her dough, put it there, take some milk, uh, bacon, whatever, she finish it this way. Is it the best, is it the best quiche Lorraine that you can have? Probably the best in rapport to the price and all this. Because then they work in another restaurant. No, the dough is done only with butter. To this, that, to Then in another one, it's puff paste. Then the dough is pre-cooked. Then it's cream, it's not butter. Then it's this, then it's that. You can always bring it to a certain level, but you have to look at it in the context of where you are in a three-star restaurant or a bistro restaurant where you pay basically nothing, you know. So what was your question? <laughs> anyway. Um, I'm... I'm sort of arguing for the idea that it's really wonderful to have the best ingredients, right. but that the entire history of French gastronomy, certainly Chinese gastronomy, but definitely French gastronomy, is, is talented and skilled chefs oh, yeah. transforming the tough and unlovable. Meaning oh. a pig cochon, a, a pig's foot, uh, a tough, uh, a tough coq au vin. You know, by you know people, no poor question. people figuring out how to make something that's not so awesome into something really awesome. No, so absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes the cuisine of the roots, you know, in France there is a three-star restaurant. There is the, the, the Michelin type of restaurant. There are about 600 in the Michelin. And uh, 20 of those are three-star, then four-star, one-star. Many people in my family have never been in a three-star restaurant in France. Yet... Most Americans will look at French chef in the context of those restaurants. There's only 23 stars, there's 147,000 restaurants in France. 
like my mother and other type, small bistro too. It's another type of cuisine too. And I have been to place where, especially now, there is so many extraordinary cooking show where they will explain to you how to cook this and how to cook that and the, the value of whatever molecule you have in there and the fat and this and that too. They know everything there is about food and I'm very impressed. I talk to people like that. They can't tell me why my hollandaise sauce break or doesn't break, if that too. And I go to it at their house, I really have a lousy meal. <laughs> you know, so. And then you go to the grandmother at the corner of the street in Italy or in Croatia or in Spain or whatever. I have no idea what she's doing. I mean, in that context, but she knows exactly what she's doing. And the type of cuisine she does may be not even written down, it's verbalized from mother to daughter, but you may have the greatest meal of your life. You know, so where do you balance those things, you know, so. It's interesting you, you bring up that um, women uh, cooking, because you grew up in uh, Bourg-en-Bresse, is yes. that the name of the town? How far from Lyon? About 40 miles. About 40 miles. Um, I became aware um, when I was uh, doing a show in Lyon, I asked uh, Paul Bocuse, I said, of all, every chef has a chef, someone in their past, you, no matter how old you are or how far you've come, every chef still wakes up in the middle of the night <gasps> like this well, in terror, <laughs> thinking of someone from their past who just <laughs> drove fear into their hearts, right. you know, a nightmare scenario. Uh, uh, many chefs, it's Robuchon, others Ducasse, others. But, so I had to ask Bocuse. His answer was La Mère Brasier. La Mère Brasier, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I have met her, she's really tough. And I guess between the wars, there were the, these women chefs uh, who right. pretty much ran the business of uh, high end rest called Les Mères, Les uh, Mères. The, the mothers. The mother of Lyon, you know, people don't realize that. Chez Juliette, Léa, La Mère Brasier. Uh, well, my mother was not part of them. She was not famous enough, but uh, yes, there was a lot of very, very famous women who run the show in Lyon, and many, many great chefs, starting with Bocuse, certainly the most famous chef in the world, I mean, arguably, but uh, learned there. Yeah, that type of cuisine. And it's interesting, you know, to break down the type of cuisine which comes from very classic French cooking to a bourgeois cooking, and you know, sometimes very elegant bourgeois cooking, the type of cooking that you find in, in Proust or, or the great French writer Balzac and so forth. And then uh, a home cooking, which already partake of the supermarket more. And then a farm cooking. When you go to a farm cooking, it's extremely limited. It's only cooking whatever grow at that particular hour of the, the year. It's very limited. The menu is one dish, two dish, whatever. And uh, it's almost impossible to partake of because if you go there, then the farmer will, as we say, put the petit plat dans les grands, put the little dish in the big one, meaning they're going to make it fancy. You know, so you have to surprise them to get, but that very pure, extraordinary cooking sometimes. I mean, it's a soup or something simple, but I mean, it has exactly the taste of what it should be. So, you know, you have a difference between those, and that cuisine is verbalized, you know, not written down. So there are different levels to the type of cuisine that people do, certainly in France. In addition to that, in France, you have regional cooking. So, you know, if you're in the south of France, in Provence, so that's how you cook. And uh, if you're in Alsace, in Normandy, to in the northeast part of France, too, totally different. I mean, there is certainly, in my opinion, I always feel that cooking is purely an expression of uh, climatic condition. 
And if you're in Provence and you have beautiful uh, uh, tomato and, and basil and garlic too, and olive oil, uh, whatever you're going to cook there, if you go 30 miles up and you're in Italy, or 30 miles the other way you're in Spain, there will be a great deal of similarity. You have the same ingredient, you know, different name. Much more difference between the cooking of Provence and Alsace, or Normandy, both in France, than the cooking of Alsace and uh, Italy, in my opinion. Yes, sir. What do you think great cooks, is there a common thread? What are great cooks anywhere in the world, anywhere you find them, what do they have in common? Are there shared, is there a shared characteristic? What, do you, what kind of personality type is required to be a good cook, or, or is there such? Hard worker, consistency, you know, being there on time, and all that too. All of that is extremely, extremely important. So that's one first level. Then the second level, if you have that type of commitment, then you learn the trade and you become a craftsman. And the craftsman is purely a question of rep repeat, you know, do it over and over and over and over and over so that it kind of became part of your DNA. So that that the time you can afford to let it go, disappear, because now you can stand in front of an audience, talk, your hands are working, and you can think in terms of combination of ingredients or whatever too. That's the technical part of the food itself, to being a craftsman, you know, to, do, to, to be a technician. But I know a fair amount of very good technicians in the kitchen, which are relatively lousy cook. The food is never very good. So, you know, this is not the end of it, but it's a good start. But if you are the type of commitment that I talk, if you become a good technician, then if you happen to have talent, then you have the know-how of those techniques to take that talent and take it somewhere. And if you infuse a little bit of love in it, then you may get to extraordinary food like, you know, like Thomas Keller or Eric Ripper or, or Jean-Georges, or those are extraordinary chefs, you know. Do you, do you have to have love or passion for cooking to be a good cook, or, or are those things overrated? It is and it isn't. That is... That's the point, you know, consistency in the kitchen is extremely important. But if you really, when you realize yourself, when you taste your own dish, you realize yourself that today was really, really good. That day you put some love in it, otherwise it won't work. You cannot really cook indifferently. I mean, in yeah, my opinion. Multitasking skills, I think, are important. If you can't multitask, yes. you know, if, oh, if, okay. if a ringing phone is going to screw up the whole situation, uh, I think that's, that, that might... Are there some people, like, given enough time and enough repetition, do you think, you know, you could teach everybody in this room to cook reasonably competently? Yeah. Or are there just some unteachable, lousy cooks? We won't have anything to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, everyone with that amount, too. And, of course, a love of food. You have to love to eat. I mean, I know people who don't love to eat and want to cook. It doesn't work. I mean, you know, when we, certainly with Julia, you, you have to love to cook, but you have to love to eat. You have to enjoy food. You have to eat it with gusto, too. I mean, that's part of it. Uh, and I am a glutton, so. What about, <laughs> yeah, you talk about, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. If you don't know how to eat and you don't love eating, how can you be expected to cook? This is my problem. Like, if you have, like, the 17-year-old chef, you, yeah. you can't even drink yet, you little pisher. Don't tell me that, you know, you can... <laughs> <laughs> You're a chef. You know, how can you... you uh. Yeah, I know. I see that. 
I see that in school, three months, and say, oh, I have a great idea for a book. Oh, gee, I have a great idea for a television show. I say, hey, why don't you, you peel that asparagus the right way? <laughs> you've, you've, over the course of your career, you've seen a lot of changes in uh, the way we cook and eat yes. and uh, the way markets in America have changed, even supermarkets, oh, restaurants, everything. Um, what, what were the, the sort of major, you know, tipping points, the, the, the big moments uh, over the course of, since your arrival in this country? I mean, you talked about what kind of vegetables, what kind of produce were available right. to you at Le Pavillon, for instance, you know, compared to, to you walk in any supermarket, now there's an organic section right, and a, right. a non-organic section and a wide array of, of, of greens that would Absolutely. be unthinkable. But, but what... What were, the, what were the big changes, the things that, 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 that I, I wish I had a better term, but tipping points? Well, you know, the challenge, the challenge in my cooking usually are fairly insidious. You know, it's not like you get up one morning and say, okay, I'm not cooking this way anymore, that's it. You know, uh, it goes till you get older and things change and all that. When I came to America, I live on 50th and 1st Avenue in New York here, and uh, going to D'Agostino Brother, I think it was, a market there, and uh, uh, there was no shallot, there was no leek, there was no oriental vegetable. Uh, I said, well, what are the mushrooms? They said, five. That was canned mushroom. So you had to go to a specialty store. On the other hand, I look at the meat, standing rebroast, lamb, too. I said, wow, that was good, and much less expensive it would have been in France. So the first supermarket that I went to, and I thought it was a fantastic idea, instead of going to 22 little stores to have everything gathered onto one store that you could go, I thought it was a terrific idea. Uh, but at the time, the food world was very, very small. I mean, I did not know one white American chef in New York. All the chefs that I knew where chef I worked for Howard Johnson. So it was the black kid that I worked with at Howard Johnson. Otherwise, all the chefs of New York restaurants were Italian, uh, uh, Spanish, certainly German, Swiss, and so forth. So, uh, and then 1960, I believe, the middle of the 1960, see, I was asked to go to the White House. I didn't go to the White House. I went to Howard Johnson. But uh, the chef who, who went there, uh, René Verdon, a friend of mine, the first time then Jacqueline Kennedy took a picture of him. He was in the newspaper too. Wow, that was new. I didn't go to the White House. I had absolutely no idea of the potential for publicity or because it did not exist. The cook was really at the bottom of the social scale. When I was in Paris working for the president, uh, I did like Eisenhower, Macmillan, Nehru, were the head of state at the time that I cooked for. I would never, never been asked to go to get kudo in the dining room, forget it. But even though, so if someone came to the kitchen, was to yell at you because something went wrong. <laughs> so the cook was really, really low. So when I was asked even to go to the White House, I, I had no idea. And I, I had worked in New York a few months already, and I was, I was going to Colombia, I was doing other things, so I didn't want to unroot myself again. Well, René Verdun went, Diane Kennedy started taking pictures of it, and the status of the chef started moving up. You know, but if you ask, who was the chef before René Verdun at the White House? It was a black lady, apparently from the South, 
No one would have known her name, no more than they knew my name or anyone else in any, you know, that's the way it was on the social scale. And uh, that, of course, now we are genius, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever. But uh, yeah, it was a deal. But then the 60s came in, and I got maybe the TV dinner of the 50s and two. Organic gardening, woman liberation, very important. Organic gardening, health food store. People start rejecting, you know, their TV dinner and so I gave cooking class at the beginning and I would have 30 people, I would have 29 women and maybe one man. Now I, would have, I may have 29 men and one woman. That is teaching how to cook. In the professional world of cooking, the whole thing changed the other way. I teach at Boston University for 32 years, and I give different classes, but one of them is a, is a small group uh, called, uh, on a certificate in the culinary art, a group of 15 people. The last three times that I went there, I had 14, 14 women, one guy. This is the world of professional chef, where women have gone into it, and the world of cooking at home, the home cooking, the men up. So there has been those type of conversion. So fairly important social change in the 60s, you know, which start making us look different. People, uh, when I, I was at Colombia, the first time that I took a plane, because I came on a boat, was when I took a, a charter plane from Colombia to go back to France in vacation, 1963 or four, whatever. And uh, it was the first time I took it to a big propeller plane still. And people started going there and going to Europe and in vacation, and, you know, those charter planes and all that. And that again changed things. You well, know? you're forgetting a major factor, uh, and it's sort of your fault, uh, oh. <laughs> the, the celebrity chef thing. I mean... Didn't uh, exist at the time. You know, uh, my friend Chef Gordon uh, was very good friends with uh, Chef uh, Roger Verger, and he describes yeah. uh, Chef Verger was... Uh, uh, hired to do a, a dinner a, at a, a charity dinner at a golf course or a, a, a fancy resort somewhere out Here? west. Uh, out west in Not the states. Not before the 70s, though. Uh, no, early. I believe right. early 70s. Yeah. And he describes how he was not allowed to eat in the dining room of, 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 the, of the place that he was cooking. They, they, they sent him back on the plane, put him in a crappy room, didn't pay him. Uh, and uh, when he asked if he could eat in the dining room, uh, not, not during the event, but at another time, no, no, no. He, essentially, he was treated as the help. What was he expecting with a cook? And, and uh, Shep describes, he, he, he through a meeting, he, call, he called up the other well-known chefs of the day. Uh, we, uh, he describes talking to Wolfgang Puck, and, he's, and, he, and they yeah, said, none of us get paid. He said, none of us get paid. We all get treated like that. This is the way it is. Somehow, at it's, some point, because of the, the, the people like you who were teaching Sorry. us to cook and, and cooking on television, whose names we learned and who, who we became attached to and cared about, people, customers started to care about who was preparing their food. We never yeah. cared before. We'd walk in and say, I, I feel like chicken tonight. Yeah. You didn't, you, maybe you knew Soule up front, but you didn't know who was in the back at no, Le Cabrillon. No, not. That well, changed. Soule didn't know what in the back. <laughs> he, <didn't>. <laughs> <laughs> he called from the top of the stair. <laughs> he was very autocratic, I mean, in the old didactic <laughs> in France. So is it a good thing, this, this monster you've created or helped create, the celebrity chef? Uh, uh, I mean, it's good times to be a, a chef. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be here. And exactly. Be here. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay.
And, I'm, and I will be milking this thing for as long yeah. and as hard as I can. Yeah, much longer than me, but I'll do it as long as I can. But, I mean, is there a downside? I mean, um, is it all good that, 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 you know, people show up at restaurants now and they don't say, I'm in the mood for chicken? They're there, said, I've heard about the chef here. Yeah. I hear he's good and I'm interested to know what he or right. she does. That's really a good thing. And uh, I will do the opposite. I go to a restaurant, tell me the chef is extremely creative too. I say, do you have any mashed potato? <laughs> Something very simple that I can make sure. Uh, you know, so it's good. It's good. Of course, it's great. On the whole, it's, it's terrific. I mean, but we are still mashed potato maker, you know what I mean? Uh, Sometimes, uh, you know, it's... it's and, and the problem is that... I don't really want to take it too seriously, but when you have a young chef with 23 years old and you have two articles in the newspaper telling him he's a genius and then he believes it, that's when it becomes that's, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we, we have some questions from the audience. Okay. Um, oh, here's a good one. What do you think is the most valuable skill for a home cook? Taste. I mean, you know, if you can taste and you have a good sense of taste, you will work on your technique or whatever and get there. And, uh, well... I would probably, uh, I am very, very miserly in the kitchen, and that would be part of my mother's training, and that's important for the home cook. Someone asks, I always wanted a miniature Jacques Pepin in my pocket on my, or on my shoulder for company and advice. Hmm. Who would you want in your pocket? Oh. <laughs> I would love a miniature Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> 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 to take me around to the trip. This is the trip he's doing in Europe, now all over the world. <laughs> and what he does, what he does is extraordinary. It has never been done again. You know, cooking is going to another level there. I mean, mixing, you know, the reportage and other type of things, but seeing from the point of view of food. And when you see country where he's going to, through the food angle, the food focus, you will know those people. You will recognize those people. You will know them much better than if you see the same reportage doing by someone who look at it from the point of view of, I don't know, architecture or philosophy or literature of a country. Food is really the essence of it. So you're doing a great job. Thank there. you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What would you like to see more of and what would you like to see less of in the food industry in general? I think I would like to have more people sending me wine for free. <laughs> less, to, less uh, a bit less pretensions, you know, about, and I am, I'm not crazy about the degustation menu. And again, the six, eight, 10, 12 little portion that I will slaughter in one second is okay, but the wine is worth. When I have 12 different types of wine, I have one tablespoon of each, and I have to analyze it and go through some type. I want a taco and a beer. I don't have... <laughs> so, I don't have much patience with that. You know, I think every chef I know uh, at this point uh, of really the tyranny of the tasting menu, it's, it's their greatest fear. It's like, please, God, don't send me eight extra quarters. I mean, this is an enviable problem that, that we, we yes, yes, you know, that we walk in a restaurant and people send us extra courses. But the prospect of a 22 or a 23 course tasting menu, it's, it's inhuman. 
And it's yeah. and it less and less these days. I agree. There are very yeah. few people <laughs> left in this world who who yeah. with whom that's a pleasurable experience. Sushi, one piece of sushi at a time, twenty-three courses, fine. That's perfect. But uh, wow. Uh, what about more of? What would you like to see more of in the industry? Well, certainly people cooking together, especially in families. You know, I, I, I think it was a last week or a couple of weeks ago, I see a woman in her 30s with her husband. They have a couple of kids, 10 years, 12 years old. And they said, this is it. We have decided we are going to cook at home and we are going to dinner. We're going to do a dinner out and all sit together at least once a month. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, what happened to the other 29? So yes, there is no question. You know, when the kids come back from school, the best place is the kitchen. You know, the smell of the kitchen, the noise of the kitchen, the, 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 the voice of his mother or, or the father, those smells, those tastes, that will be enshrined uh, within yourself forever. I mean, it's very visceral. Those tastes you will remember all your life. There is nothing as uh, comforting as that. And when you think of those kids in Afghanistan or somewhere who are 18, 19, 20, 22 years old, risking their life, and then what do they think they, 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 they dream of at night? You know, the kid may dream of his uh, father uh, uh, apple pie or his mother clamshader or, or the southern fried of chicken of the, his cousin or whatever it is. So at that point, the food itself transcends the level of food. That food means comfort, it means security, it means home, it means many, many more than food it is. So those essential tastes that you have as a child, you know, those memory and all that are very, very important for me. You know. People often, and I'm sure people say this to you, if they're having you over for dinner, they say, oh, I'm so nervous. I, oh, yeah, and they apologize yeah. in advance and, and they sort of, and, and, and they maybe tr they're a little more ambitious in what they're preparing than they should be. I, I, I always assure them, look, anybody's mother's meatloaf is something I would pretty much really like to eat. <laughs> Me too. Um, you know, given, especially given what I eat, I eat around the world. What do you, if you're going over to someone's house, ideally, in an ideal situation, what do you want to have for dinner? What are you hoping they'll make? So what I do, you bring a bottle of wine, right? You go into the kitchen and you say, hi, too, fine, have a glass of wine with me. Fine, they say, oh, you're going, it smells good, you really have another glass of wine with me. And then I go, so have a third glass of wine with me. To the fourth, fifth glass of wine, I'm going to do this. <laughs> Which wine, by the way? Sheep wine, any, any sheep or free wine is fine. I, you know, yeah, I'll drink to that. <laughs> I have to ask you this. I'm finding, like, the older I get, the less I want big monster wines. Like, but, you know, somebody brings me some incredible once-in-a-lifetime yeah. glass of wine. I always sort of feel like I'm not dressed well enough to enjoy this. <laughs> it, I know. And, and I'm, I'm enjoying know. sort of rough Cote de Rhone and yeah. unpredictable... Uh, and, and uh, you know, my favorite wines, actually, I'll be traveling uh, maybe with my wife's family in, in Italy, and we'll go to a little agriturismo on the side of the road, 
and I'll be really enjoying the wine, and I'll ask the owner, you know, who makes this wine? And he'll point at some old man at the bar, the, that guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and oh, it's just, it's fantastic. Yeah. No, absolutely, I agree with you. And, and you know, at 30 years over you, and it's got to get worse this way. I mean, I had, I had extraordinary wine that I'd say I had a 1959 uh, a bottle of, uh, of Romane Conti Latache, you know, which someone gave me, cost like $8,000. What did I do? I gave it to a friend of mine because he's very much into wine. I mean, for him, it's an extraordinary thing. And for me, fine. I don't, uh, you know, you know, in, in my book, I have that little book, The Apprentice, as you know, because you've been kind enough to do a, an introduction to it. And I say a different story. I came here in 1959. In 1963, when, uh, 64, when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated, first time that I left New York, I went to, uh, I, I met a, 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 a Mexican woman in New York, Friend of mine, so before I was married, my wife is it. We've only been married 50 years, but it's not, it's, that was before. So anyway, and uh, <laughs> she, uh, she told me, come for the, for, to spend Christmas in Mexico. So we go to with my friend, uh, Jean-Pierre, with a pastry chef in New York. I say, let's go. So we go. And I say, you know, if we go to Mexico, and there been a, I, I want to stop in Dallas to see where the president. So we stop in Dallas. We go to the Adolfo Hotel, she's still there, and uh, I remember we came, and I come to the bar, and I say, okay, uh, to the, the registering, and I say, where is the bar? They say, this is a dry county. I say, well, what does that mean? I say, this is a dry, we don't have any, I say, you must be kidding. So he said, well, if you want to fill up that form, then you'll be a member of the club upstairs, and you can go and drink. I say, okay, fine, we fill up the thing, we go there, there is a restaurant, that the French room, very fancy. I mean, black tie, metro D glove like this too. We go there and uh, find, we look at the, the menu, people had bottled in, in box, scotch or whatever, but I wanted some wine. And I said, you have a wine list? They have the wine list. And I see that same Latache, Romain de Conti, 1959. But of course, that was 1964, it was that old. But uh, it was like $20, 20 which maybe, $150 now, but basically nothing for the price right. of what it was. So I say, you have that one? He say, oh, yes. Wow, I think I can be a bottle. Absolutely. So we wait. So they bring some mammoth girl to, I say, where is the wine? I call the guy. I say, where is the wine? It's coming, it's coming. Then we go, still no wine. Then they bring the menu. Then we choose our menu. Then we get the first course. Still no wine. 45 minutes later, I say, what's going on? Finally, they brought the wine, that beautiful bottle of old Burgundy in a bucket of ice for an hour and a half. They don't need to make it really ice cold, you know. So I told the guy, do you have more of it? He said, yes. I said, you know, we're kind of strange. We like it, kind of lukewarm, or just bring another bottle just the way it is and leave this one. We'll drink it later. Later. That's what we do. But I mean, also just to tell you, the way things have changed in America, I mean, the wine or food, is that it's just simply amazing, you know? So, I don't know, that's a long digression, what I'm do you, sorry. What do you think, I, I mean, I happen to, I believe in a perfect America, for instance, that everyone should be essentially forced to learn to cook certain basic things, meaning, you know, we used to have what was called home ec class. Um, the, the girls would be shuffled off into that. Boys would go do shop. Girls would, would, be, would be off to home ec. 
that was, I mean, good idea, that was abandoned. My, my feeling is that we should bring home ec back and make everybody do it. I think everybody should, should, be, should learn to feed themselves and a few friends reasonably well, a few basic tasks, the ability to, for instance, make an omelet, uh, roast a chicken properly, uh, just a few basic tasks, and if they can't do that by 13 or 14, they should be basically shamed and marginalized. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, if you can't cook for your, your, your dorm mates in college by the time you hit college, you know, you should be, no one would, would want to live with you. If, if, if this was the world for some reason, I was elected, you know, permanent leader and, and this, it was like this, boy, that would be great. What do you think people should, what, what basic skills should, in a perfect world, everyone know how to do in the kitchen, do you think? So you're saying we should have the gulag of cooking. So people, yeah. with, the, with, people with machine gun around. I'm sorry, your omelet skills are just not up to snuff. On the wall, your omelet, okay. <laughs> but I mean, if, if, if you could... It's, uh, it's uh, very simple, depending where you are. You know, it's an interesting thing that if you go to Korea, as you have been, or to uh, South Africa, or to Senegal, Gambia, France, Italy, or Spain, uh, that same chicken will take different direction and different taste. I'm sure someone could do a recipe, a book of chicken with over 10,000 recipes, quite different. You know, this is the way it is, in different. So, you know, those tastes that you have as a child, that I, they stay with you too, and you go in another country and the taste is different. And you tend to say, certainly the French tend to say too much, well, that's no good, oh my God, that's, because it's not their taste. But for the people in the South Korea or somewhere which had no taste since they were born, this is the greater taste, you know. So without any question, in any of those countries, it'd be good to have people uh, taking the basic ingredient and, uh, yes, having them in, in, the, in primary school to start with when I was secondary school. At the end of secondary school, if they cannot make it to college, they should be either guillotined it <laughs> yeah. sounds That's reasonable a good to idea. me. We should do a but, mission but of cook. If, if, <laughs> if you were, let's say, if there were a courses in like junior high school, high school, I mean, what would be on the curriculum? I mean, you know, you pretty much taught me how to make an omelet. Shouldn't everyone know how to make an omelet? Omelet is great. I mean, you know, my wife's uh, greatest uh, recipe <clears throat> she has from me is uh, fridge soup. So anything in the fridge, after like four or five days hanging around, we do soup. We do soup probably more than anything else throughout the year. And it's true, you know. And I have some rolls left. I have some gratin of spaghetti. I have whatever it will end up in the soup very often. So soup, for me, soup, salad, omelette, yes, eggs, those are very, very basic ingredients that anyone can do, which are very inexpensive ingredients that you can really do superlative food with, yes. I mean, for me, yeah, doing a good omelette with potato, doing potato, uh, and cooking, because we do exaggerate one way, we exaggerate another way. I mean, when my mother was doing uh, uh, string beans, uh, uh, the string beans was khaki color, you know, and, then, and well, well cooked, you know, so fine. So now we start changing. But I mean, who am I to tell my mother that she's wrong, frankly? But in any case, we're doing it, and we, then we did the string beans or the asparagus, slightly crunchy, and it's very nice. Now you go in a place, they dip it in boiling water, give it to you, everything is raw. So, I mean, we move it to the extreme, mm -hmm. 
So, you know, the same ingredient by five different people may be quite different, you know, so. I knew we'd yeah. get this question, um, but I'm, I'm curious. Um, it's for, what is your guiltiest food pleasure? And, and I think they want a really guilty pleasure. I, I ask this so on stage with Eric Repair all the time, you know, what's your guilty pleasure? And I'm looking for something really shameful, like a bowl of Captain Crunch with crunch berries at two in the morning, or, you know? And no, and he's like, oh, well, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I have a little piece of chocolate, or, no, I go to the refrigerator and I have a little, I have a little pate, and I'm like, who, first of all, who keeps pate in their refrigerator? <laughs> Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I'll, I'll go first. I will admit that I will sometimes put a hooded sweatshirt on and I will sneak into Popeye's fried chicken. <laughs> for the, for the, and it's not even for the chicken. It's for that nasty macaroni and cheese. And there's not even anything resembling cheese in it that I can tell. That nuclear orange stuff. And, and it's microwaved, and I, I, I just love that stuff. And you love it. <laughs> so, come on, fess up. See that, Is there that, something that, really hideous that you like? probably the difference between you and me. Uh, <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I, would, I would go there with the hood on my head the same way, but I wouldn't be guilty at all. <laughs> I am, I am, I'm truly, I'm a glutton. Uh, you know, if I like it. You know, when I came to America and I did a thing, so I, like, I, well, today I was on the, on the, on the, on the Rachel Ray show, and uh, Jacques Torres, who yes, somewhere came, and did a big cake for me with Oreo cookie. Because when I came to America, I said, I love Oreo cookie, I love Fig Newton, I love uh, Jello, I love Jello. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I love, you know, a lot of stuff. So, I'm really a glutton, you know. The, okay, you know, the, like the multicolored jello with like the bananas and the can, the Del Monte fruit salad in it. That's I kind of like that. That's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where do you eat? Let's be. More, what's your favorite restaurant? Some question here. Favorite restaurant on the Upper East Side, and let's let's go above. Let's make it interesting. Above Seventy Second Street, that takes Danielle out of the out of the. She. I, I frankly don't know, because I, uh, I live in Connecticut. I'm sure you can recognize my Yankee drawl. <laughs> I mean, this is not New York. It's purely Connecticut. Uh, which one, little one? Oh, Reos? Oh, yeah, Reos is good. <laughs> you get a seat around? We were in Reos a, 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 few, uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was terrific. But I don't live in New York that much. I, I eat at the school, and I don't really... Uh, go that much to restaurants anymore. Yeah, well, you know, I live so. on the Upper East Side. Yes. And when they opened Shake Shack on 86th Street. Well, I love Shake Shack. I, I fell to my yeah. knees and wept with gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you. What, well, you know, it, I'm not saying it's a food desert, but it just seems with so many wealthy people living in a small, confined area that, that there should be better options than, than there are. It's it is true. not a wonderland of food by yeah. any but stretch you of the know, imagination. On the other hand, to paraphrase James Beard, who said we're at the best restaurant, the best restaurant is where they know you. And there is a grain of truth there. You know, people know you, they receive you, it's nice, you have a nice drink, they even remember it kind of drink you have to, and even if it's not quite as good as maybe somewhere else, you have a better evening, you know, so. Whose cooking do you enjoy the most in the whole world? Whose cooking I yeah. enjoy the most in the whole world? Mine. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
And things and are, it, it, this is scary. That's scary when you do that. When Claudine, our daughter, was eight years old, I take her to France. We go to a farm. I remember one time, and the farmer was there, and she sit next to the farmer, and she was plucking a duck. We were going to have a duck for lunch. And Claudine said, why do you take all the leaves out? She didn't know the word feather in French. Right. So she said leave. <laughs> and, but the point was not there. The point is that he was exposed to this, exposed to that, and the kid has to get exposed to that because otherwise you get too far from Mother Nature and it's scary. You know? yeah, my, my daughter is essentially being raised, uh, at, you know, her mom's Italian and uh, we spend a fair amount of time in Italy. She knows where food comes from. You know, she'll, she can, you know, pet the, pet the sheep and I can say, hey, don't get too close to socks, okay? Because, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah, you know, good. socks has got to go soon. And uh, yeah. she knows where food comes from. Yeah. But we, I mean, look, we've gotten better as a nation we, as far as where our food comes from. And, and in some ways, to an insane degree, I mean, I walk in a, every, every supermarket now I mentioned earlier, they have the organic and the non-organic right, section. Right, right, right. Well, I, I go in, I'm holding my daughter's hand, I go into um, uh, Fairway on 86th Street. And I, I need lemons and limes, and I figure, you know, I don't need organic for that. I head over to the non-organic section, and all these, like, Upper East Side women are looking at me with my daughter, and they're like, you monster! You know, it's like, <laughs> they look at me and the child, and they're, like, calling Child Protective Services on me. <laughs> it's really bad. Let me yeah. ask you, in your entire career in the restaurant business, did anyone ever say they were gluten intolerant? No, 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 apparently, no. I'm, I'm, it's an I'm epidemic. Not, apparently, you know, I, and I'm not joking there. I I didn't know what the word allergy means until I came to the U.S. Uh, because it, it, I didn't remember anyone when I was a kid allergic to one thing or another. People didn't have that, you know. So yeah, it, well, without they any question, it in my opinion. In my opinion, it is processed food. All the junk we put in our food, we put the kit there now. Because it really didn't exist before. I mean, you know, so, so yes, we have to do something about that. But to, to you what have degree, to do something about that. I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted about this. On one hand, you know, I'm very... Uh, I think everyone should be able to make their own decisions about yes. what or not. But, but clearly, it's a problem. Um, it, it, I'm uncomfortable with the notion that chefs should have to have a conscience about what they're feeding me. Well, I always thought we were in the pleasure business, but uh, you know, if you look at us and look, uh, look at the health of the nation, right. it's, uh, it's something we clearly uh, have, to, have to consider. And, it, and it, it's funny, isn't it, of all of the people and all of the professions in the world that chefs should be taking the lead in this uh, right. is sort of ironic and extraordinary, I mean, you know, we've been traditionally a pretty motley bunch of people living on the fringes of society that we should somehow be, uh, any kind of a social conscience is extraordinary. Uh, no, I, and I, I think speaks well of, not me necessarily, but, but some of my, my peers. No, no, I mean, vegan, uh, being vegan, being vegeta vegetarian, I mean, you know, I, I don't think that we have the moral authority to, to decide uh, you know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't like anything which is kind of a self-righteousness. Oh, my God, you're eating. <gasps> yeah, I like it. I like bug. <laughs> so <fine. laughs> Whatever. So, yes, this is not the role of the chef. But you can still, I mean, uh, bring good ingredients, teach people the right uh, way, make them in tune with nature, 
That, I think that's very important. I'd like to take my daughter, uh, my granddaughter, picking up wild mushroom and, uh, uh, you know, down lion and all kind of stuff like this and tell her, watch out, the mushroom may be dangerous too. And, you know, when I get home, my wife tests it anyway. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, that's great. If, if you couldn't be a chef, if you hadn't, what, if you could do it all over again and pick any profession, anything, what, what would you have chosen if you yeah, could have that's, chosen? That's a good point, you know, because we never choose. You know, I was 13 years old and had blinders. You know, my mother was a, was a chef, my father was a cabinet maker. There was no television, uh, there was no magazine too, so I didn't know in half an hour that I could become a great architect or whatever, no television. So yes, we had really blinder. It was much easier to choose that. But I mean, the way I, I, I do, and I like to bone out chicken, maybe a surgeon, I like to bone out things. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I'd be a bass player in Parliament Funkadelic. Oh, good. <laughs> that sounds good. Who's your favorite French author? And why? This is a great question. I'm really curious about this. Well, many, many, but uh, in the old one, Albert Camus probably was very important. In the time that I was in Paris, existentialism was big, and Sartre certainly, but Camus even more in uh, L'Etranger or the myth of Sisyphus, you know. Uh, cheerful books. Very, yeah, very, real, real, real upbeat stuff. Yeah, very cheerful <laughs> book, too. And then, you know, I have, uh, like, for example, I love uh, uh, Gabriel Marquez, you know, 100 years of, uh, but, but I just read, well, not just, maybe a year or two ago, I read uh, Love at the Time of Cholera. I like, I love his style and uh, that type of book here, yeah, so. But. Oh, no, this one's for me. I'm not answering that. What are the, ah. No, I have to ask this. What, what are the worst things about this monster that you've helped create? Uh, uh, you know, the, the cult of celebrity chefs, food programming. What's the worst? What, now, let me make it a more general question. In restaurants or in the, just in the world of food in general, what makes you angry? What makes you just what? grind your teeth and say, I just can't take any more of this? Or, or I just, I can't, I, I don't even want to look at her. I, I, please don't ever let me see this on a menu again. Um, I mean, I can think of a whole bunch of things. Yeah, me too. But I mean, the, the pretensions of chef very often, you know, wanted to impose that type of cooking with you, wanted to impose that taste, wanted to impose on you their sense of aesthetic or their sense of taste. And you look at it and say, this is pretty bad. And, and the, yeah, I mean, I have no... I have no patience for that type of, uh, you know, for that type of pretensions. And, uh, you know, uh, as I say very often when I go to a restaurant like that, the chef, they say the chef is extremely creative. I say, let's get out, you know. So. Okay, so on a scale of one to ten, one being pretty annoying and ten being just, I, 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 I have to kill something immediately. Um, rapid fire, uh, what are sommeliers? What, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What a summary. Would that be yeah. like a five or yeah. a six on the heat meter? That would be a zero there. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, truff, truffle oil? Truffle oil, it depends. There is a couple of get pretty good. I mean, it's not really truffle all the time, but sometimes the taste can be pretty good. Three, four, five. <laughs> Seven with eggs. 
I like it with scrambled eggs on top. I had a really, I had a terrifying experience the other day. I was in California, I was in San Francisco. I'd had a really, really bad day and I stumbled into a bar looking for a beer and I sat down and I noticed there was a big board of many, many, many beers, all of whose names I was unfamiliar with, but I thought, okay, craft beer. And I ordered a beer and I look around and the place is filled with people with little glasses of beer, very serious, drinking them and writing notes. And I had found myself in a nest of beer nerds. And I thought, this is a terrible thing. Like, I like good beer, I like craft beer. These are all good things, but, but you know, drinking is supposed to be fun, well, yeah. right? And it was so serious. How about, what's the cutoff point for a waiter to describe what you're about to eat. Like, how many, how many seconds do they have before you start to get irritated? No, no, yeah, that's pretty short. <laughs> I said, okay, 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 it's chicken? Fine, it's chicken. <laughs> uh, yeah, it can be the, the special chicken that did that too. And you know, this is one of the points uh, at the turn of the century, in the 19th century, during the, uh, when Escoffier, one of the great French chefs, was that, he kind of codified uh, in the Guide Culinaire, you know, early uh, 1905, I believe, and, uh, which was very complicated, but he kind of codified it so that you know that if you have something Lyonnaise, like that, that would be with onion, something Crécy with, with carrot, something Dubarry was with cauliflower, uh, whatever. So. Uh, so at least the menu become munch, trimmer, and two, and you have a tournado, du barry. So you know that there will be either a, a, you know, a, a kind of a, a, something with cauliflower, which may have been a, a custard of cauliflower or whatever. So, I mean, you had an idea too. This was totally destroyed with Nouvelle Cuisine too. So now you have our little excellent I don't know why they say excellent. I'm the one to decide whether it's going to be excellent. But uh, <laughs> excellent, well done, perfectly made. A little thing with this and that, and this and that, and this and that, and this and that, and ay, 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 three, four, five lines, instead of two words, you know? So we didn't get better at that. How many times should a waiter check on whether we are enjoying our food? Not when we are talking. <laughs> one when we are talking and they push you apart and say, is everything okay? <laughs> <laughs> And the, and, the, and the wine, how much do you want to know about the wine? I want to know, if I want to know something, I will ask. I say, what is that? He said, well, it's a, a Gruner Wettliner, you know, it's from, uh, you know, Austria and so on. I say, great, okay, that's enough. I say, it's from whom, which year is it? Okay, okay, that's fine. If I want to know more, I can ask, but he shouldn't really tell me much more than that unless I ask. Now, of course, we have the last meal question, but I'm... And, and I think previously you said, was it bread and butter? That oh, was yeah. if, last meal, good, good bread, good butter. Among That's, other things, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, who are you eating that meal with? Where are you eating that? Forget about the bread and butter. Last meal, and I mean a meal. Right. Where is it going to be? Meal. Who are you eating with? It's going to be at my house. It's going to be with my wife. It's going to be my daughter, granddaughter. If I can have my father, mother coming back, all of those. Yeah, all the people there in my life. And it's going to be a very, 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 very long meal. <laughs> like, <laughs> a couple of years.
I, see, I, I, I don't, I don't want to be with loved ones. <laughs> I want to be like an old, I want to be like an old lion and you know, crawl off in a bush alone. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to bum them out. I, I think Sukiyabashi Jiro in Tokyo. Um, oh. Maybe a young Ava Gardner next to me would, wouldn't. <laughs> Sounds and, good and you too. can shoot me right there, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can pretty much come up behind me and bang right at that counter. Okay. And I, I, as I sat to that the floor, exactly. I would not be, yeah, um, I would not feel cheated. No. You know, I would not say life has really dealt me a dirty hand. As I sagged to the floor after 22 courses at Giro, Ava Gardner's face growing fuzzy in the distance. <laughs> I figure, you know, life didn't suck so bad after all. <laughs> Sounds good, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come back seven times anyway. <laughs> you, you, you think so? I'm going to come back seven times. I'm triple deadly, you know? Okay, I don't know. I, 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 I was just having this conversation with Eric Repair the other day um, uh, because he's a Buddhist, and he absolutely believes that he's coming back. And I'm saying, oh, yeah? yeah, but life is pretty good for you. How good can the next one be? How could you get this lucky twice? Three times. It's, or three times. I mean, <laughs> next time's definitely going to be a step down. Yeah, right. You know, you're going to end up working at, like, Blimpy or Subway <laughs> or something. You know, it's you're not, not, so, not so good. Let's see. We have a couple, just a couple more. We have time just a couple more. Yeah, of course. What did you most admire about Julia Child? You knew her so, so well. Her being herself. I mean, uh, I met her in 1960, so I knew her for 45 years, and she was never different at home than when she was on television, whatever. We had a great time eating, drinking in her house from breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And uh, in many ways, her uh, pretentiousness, you know, she liked something, and when we talked, you know, especially new chef too. If she didn't know something, she'd be the first one to, what is this? I have no idea what that is. And uh, so she was very secure with herself. So it was a, she was very comfortable to be with in that sense, you know, so great. You have a new book, Heart and Soul yeah. in the Kitchen? Yeah. What's it about? Just one more. Just one more. <laughs> now, uh, I, you know, I did, 25 book, 27 book, 28. I, I don't really know exactly. I don't know because you see, I did a series called Two Days Gourmet. Then we did a book, 26 show about 100 recipes. Then we, a second series of Two Days Gourmet called Long Life Cooking, I believe, another small book. Then I did another series of Two Days Gourmet, Happy Cooking, another 26 show, another 110 recipes. Then they take those three books, put it together into a large book called Jacques Pepin Table. So now do I have one book or four? <laughs> you know, that's what happened. Often they take stuff. But uh, I did a book for the Cleveland Clinic at some point for cardiac patients. You know, for 10 years, I had an article in the New York Times called The Purposeful Cook, how to cook for a family of six for the least amount of money. So that was money. That was health. I did a book called The Shortcut Cook, you know, I did a book of technique where I went fishing in my pond to get frog so I could take the skin out of frog, show you how to take it out. Or I went fishing in Long Island to, to catch a, a skate so I could show you how to take the wing out of skate because you can only buy the wing out of skate. Uh, so that was you know, totally focused on more of a professional and so forth. I didn't do that in that book. We have about 200 recipes of what we like to eat at home. I need tashirashi sushi, my wife loves 
sushi, it may be a, a philosophical uh, uh, Riviera, I call it that, the Riviera Maya in, in Mexico, because I push the salt, a bit of white wine, right? but I put the Pico de Mayo in it, you know, uh, Pico de Gallo, rather, Pico de Gallo. Uh, uh, to finish with a bit of cream, so influence here, there. Uh, I didn't, I, I never, I think that I was very chauvinistic, uh, French, uh, I never really tried to be French, Italy, or for that matter, I don't try not to be French. I don't really think much in those terms. I do dishes which I've done, and those dishes that I've done over 50 years that I've been here, so that's probably a, a very American cookbook. I did a small chapter on the, on the organ meat, variety meat, which years ago you wouldn't do. But now young chefs are crazy about that, from pig's feet to, uh, to, to you know, beef tongue or, or tripe or stuff like this. So uh, that's what the book is all uh, about. And I cook with my granddaughter, uh, Shari. I went foraging with her for mushrooms. I cook with Gloria. I cook with Fran, my friend Jean-Claude, who's been a friend of mine. We worked together for the French president in 1956-7. So, you know, we are very dear friends. And, uh, you know, that type of thing, uh, which is a bit of an extension. I have a little book called The Apprentice, which is a bit of a cook's memoir. So uh, this is a bit of a and visual thing. Of that. It's an extraordinary book. I urge everyone to get it. Uh, along with uh, La Technique, of course, which yeah. is, you know, few books are, it, it, always and forever argument enders, meaning if you're arguing with someone how to make an omelet, you could pretty much settle the matter by opening up La Technique, you know, case closed. And last question uh, before we end this, if, if, you could, if you had one short bit of advice for people who, and so many people now who say, you know, I would, I, I'm thinking of becoming, I'd like to become a chef. Yes. Um, I'd like to enter the business. I'd like to become a professional cook in hopes of someday becoming a chef. What, what's the best advice you could give them? I would tell them that it, it, is a, it is a tough world, you know, so you have to have a great deal of commitment and come in that business for the right reason. Right reason being is that you love it. It gratified you, you're happy, because by the time you're 35, you will have varicose then, and uh, you won't make that much money uh, uh, going on a cook from one place to another too. And uh, you may, quote, become famous, or do a book, or do a television show. You may or may not, probably not. Uh, the way they are. So uh, the, the right reason is really for you to love it, as I said, to feel commitment for it and feel that it gratified you. Because, I mean, you know, the secret of life is relatively easy. If you do what you love to do in life, then, you know, you never have to go to work. <laughs> Thank you so much. It has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.